Six is get ready, and seven is go. And eight is get ready, and nine is go. And four is get ready, and five is go. Each is a preparation for the next. And the fifth step, and the seventh step, and the ninth step very much are a process of ego deflation. Now, if, you're going to have to do some reading to see that, okay? And every single one of those steps takes us along that horizontal plane, spiritually, towards others. Every one of them. Okay? In the fifth step where we confess to another human being, okay, the exact nature of our wrongs, we're moving along. In the seventh step, when we, when we ask God to remove our shortcomings, we're asking Him, really, if you use the prayer in the big book, to remove the things that are standing between you and Him and your fellows. Uh, and in the ninth step, you're going directly to people. And the beautiful thing about the ninth step, really, of the restitution process altogether, is, is that uh, if you're familiar with the karma, the wheel of karma, are you familiar with that concept? Okay, let me give it to you briefly, okay? Karma says this. It's like you see a wheel up here, and it's going round and round, and karma says what you put on the wheel over here, exactly what you put on the wheel is coming back to you. Uh, in Christian tradition, it is stated in a different way. It's called the law of retribution. It says, what you sow, you will reap. Now, over the years of our addiction, we have sowed many seeds on that wheel of karma. And the beauty of the, the process of steps four through nine is that we get a chance to identify what it is we put on the wheel, okay? who we need to go to in order, if you will, to clean off the wheel. Yeah. We don't have to reap that which we sowed if we dig it out, okay? If we make amends, in other words, take it off the wheel. Another beautiful thing about the wheel of karma is that it works positively, too. Whatever you put on the wheel that is good will come back to you. No ifs, ands, and buts. It's a spiritual axiom, a spiritual law that it's going to happen this way. So <clears throat> these steps are a process of ego deflation. They're a process of... Uh, when they deflate the ego, they move you closer to the other. They deflate it, they move you closer to the other. Because remember, the, the ego, the I, is a conscious sense of separation from. And we want to decrease that separation from and move back into that world that the child lives in, which is called the we world. Okay? And that's what the steps are doing for us in a very large way. Now, if it said all the way throughout the big book, uh, uh, we're doing this to deflate your ego, Tom, I probably never would have done that because I didn't understand what ego deflation was. I don't think I even knew I had one when I got there. You know? And it was so screwy and so reversed, anyway, that it would have frightened me. Any of you ever read the original manuscript of the big book? I would have never joined this outfit. You know what it said? You must do this. You must do that. You must do this. It was all you. There was no we in it. And at one point after the 12 steps, it says, uh, if you've read this far, and or I don't know the exact words, and are, and are not willing to go on with this, then read it again. And if you're not, then throw the book away. That's pretty aggressive, isn't it? And on the suggestion of a psychiatrist, perish the thought. <laughs> Who said, this is a little harsh, a little pushy. They changed the words to we. Okay? 
There's magic in that word. There really is. Now, after we've completed the first nine steps of our program, I don't know what it says in the NA book, but in the AA book, it says, we have now entered the world of the Spirit. Strange, isn't it? We have now entered the world of the Spirit. Okay? What's that? Think. We've been dealing in the first nine steps with what? Ourselves? But what aspect of ourselves? Our past. Right? First nine steps bring us up to the world of the Spirit. N-O-W. Now. Present. Where it's all at. Now is an interesting thing. Even before I quit saying the word now, it's not now. One of my favorite philosophers is a Jewish guy, Martin Buber. And he says, Now is the only point at which I shall touch eternity. It is always now. You ever thought about that? It's a beautiful thing. Now, higher power, when he spoke to Moses, and I always envied Moses, you know, higher power said, I am. Didn't he? That means like God's present tense, I am present tense. Now is the world of the Spirit. Now is the world of relation. And it goes on to say that our next step is to grow in understanding and effectiveness. Our next step is to grow in understanding and effectiveness. And we get into those maintenance steps in the program. Now I'll take a particular point of view today. Uh, and about the last two, or the 10th uh, the and 11th steps, I'm just going to try to touch those a little bit. Just touch and get you thinking a little bit about them, okay? They're very important steps, these maintenance steps. Okay? Uh, those of you who heard me talk last night, I said that when I got to this fellowship, okay, and into the 12-step way of life, I hated me. How many of you hated you? I mean, really and truly now. Okay? In a very strong, strong way. Felt like you were an utter failure. I did. A real loser. Uh, I was the guy who, when uh, my psychiatrist asked me to describe myself, answered instantly, I am the sorriest son of a bitch in the world. Instantly. And didn't hear myself, Patty. And I wondered why my life was going consistently downhill. I wondered. It couldn't go any other way. I believe I'm rotten. I'm rotten. I'm going to behave rottenly. Matter of fact, every time everything got good in my life, I'd louse it up. If I'm not careful, I'd do the same thing these days. These God-awful beliefs that I had about myself. When you get into your belief system, look at some of those. I'm no good, I'm sorry, I'm worthless, I'm unlovable. Look for them. When you see them, admit them. Accept them. Change them. Identify what's really there. But you can't do that unless you watch. Now, the tenth step, viewed non-religiously, but from the point of view of a spiritual teacher... Do you remember when this spiritual teacher came down? He'd been up on the mountain, been doing some praying. He left his guys down there waiting for him, and he came back, and they were asleep. 
Okay? He said two things. Watch and pray. Remember that? Watch and pray. The Greek word for watch is a beautiful thing. It's a command. Gregorite. You know what it means? And wake up. Be aware. Realize. Look. Watch. Then pray. Look at 10 and 11. You almost see an identical pattern there. Watch and pray. Tenth step, step says we continue to take personal inventory when we were wrong, promptly admitted it. It's a recapitulation of several of the preceding steps, obviously. But note the terminology. In the book Alcoholics Anonymous, anyway, it says we continue to watch. That's what it says. We continue to watch for selfishness, dishonesty, resentment, and fear. And when these crop up, not if, when. We do the following. So, we've got to move, I believe, from self-hate to self-love through watching, through self-acceptance. That's really far out, isn't it? Self-acceptance. Who, me? Accept me? I don't even like me. I've got to fight and I've got to change. And yet our program says in the preamble and how it works in the AA book, those that don't recover are those who cannot or will not completely give themselves to this simple program, not fight anything. So we watch. Let's talk about three aspects of watching, waking up, realizing, being aware. And you know, I think it's a strange thing. A friend of mine says most of us walk around this earth for most of our lives in a state of spiritual sleep. We don't know who we are. We don't know who others are. We don't know what the world's all about and life's all about. You know? But we tell ourselves we do, which deepens the sleep. Watching. It's an interesting thing. If you believe that this world is a terrible place, Watch for one day, all day, for the good things that happen to you and for you that you don't have anything to do with. Wake up. Realize. Be aware. Some of you are already thinking back through today, aren't you? Because some things have already happened. You know... I was so arrogant that when the good things happened, I just didn't even notice them. I just took them for granted. They were supposed to. Really. Oh, boy, but when the bad ones happened, I was very aware of those. Why? Because of my attitude. Because of my perception of reality. I was looking at it from the left-hand side, always. And I was unaware of the good in life. I'm not saying this is a grand and glorious and wonderful world, but I'm not saying it's not. We have people who want to understand and don't understand what grace is. 
if you will watch for one day for the good things that happen to you and for you that you don't have anything to do with, you will begin to understand with that knowing beyond knowing what grace is. You will experience it. You will begin to look for it. You'll begin to expect it. You'll begin to count on it. And it'll happen more often. Because you're awake. You're watching. How many of you have ever done that? How many of you have ever taken an hour or two hours and watched for the good things that happen to you and for you you don't have anything to do with? We'll go to a meeting and we'll say, the most marvelous thing happened tonight. I was thinking about so-and-so and he called me. The most marvelous thing happened today. I was down and I got this letter. And after we talk about it at the meeting, it's gone. And probably that day when you spotted that one thing, you spotted 500 things that were bad and missed 500 that were also good. Which side do you want to live on? I'm not talking about being a fool. I'm talking about being more positive. There's an old song. I was talking to a lady about it the other night. I think Johnny Mercer wrote the old song. It says you've got to accentuate the positive. Eliminate the negative. Latch on to the affirmative and don't mess with Mr. In-Between. That's what I'm talking about. And it goes beyond positive thinking. It includes that, but it goes beyond. It's embracing the truth, really, that there's a God and that he or she really does care about me and that they consciously work for me 24 hours a day. Me. Else, why is it that when I've got a particular song on my mind and I really want to hear it and I go get in the car and cut on the radio, it's playing? Hmm? Why? But you've got to watch. The program is a program of spiritual awakening because we're in spiritual sleep. I believe they go together. And spiritually, you see, I take naps all the time. Don't y'all? I take naps all the time. There have been very few people throughout history that have been continually awake. And they have been so transformed that even those who loved them and lived with them did not know them. It's powerful. But it's got a lot Got to watch some other things, too. Watch for the vultures. You know what the vultures are? Hmm? Sid Simons wrote a book on values clarification. He's probably the world's foremost authority on values clarification. He's also a very gentle and kind and beautiful guy. And he wrote a little old book called Vultures. And vultures are the put-downs that I do on myself. So why are you taking a day to watch for the good things that happen to you? Take another day. I know this is taking a lot of your time to do this, but take another day and watch for the number of times you put yourself down. That's really incredible. You want to find out if you hate yourself or not? Take a day and do this. How you really feel about yourself? We got a terrible opinion of ourselves. 
We are God's kids. We are expressions of God. If what I said is true, you know, I don't know. I think it is. And we treat ourselves like dirt and beggars. Prodigal son, I am not fit to be my father's kid. We really do a number on ourselves. Watch for it. You make a mistake, and you hear yourself say, profanely, so-and-so, you've never done anything right. Do any of y'all do that? Boy, that's, that's that never word again. So you know the ego's involved in there somewhere, don't you? And all you've done is make a small mistake, and you're damning yourself for it. People in transactional analysis talk about tapes that we have in us, and certain things happen, and the tape starts playing. It's an old reaction pattern, an old thought pattern of some kind, behavior pattern of some kind. And I often thought, man, it would be wonderful if you could get a new tape library, right? Called the regenerated person, right? The one who's grown down finally, once and for all. Take out the old tapes and put in the new ones. Wouldn't it be wonderful? It's almost like going for the center of the Oreo, isn't it? I got to tell you something about me. If somebody made me able to get that set of tapes and play them, I would find fault with them and be bored with them in a very short time. I used to think I wanted to live on a mountaintop. I don't. I'd long for the valley. I need the ups and I need the downs. I need to take control of the driver's seat every now and again. I need to. Okay? If only just to learn again that that's not my proper position in life. I need to learn and relearn and relearn. I need a tape to play over and over and over and over and over again. You understand what I'm saying? I need redundancy. I need repetitiveness. I need to go to meetings now. Over and over and over again and hear them say the same things over and over and over again because if I don't, I'm going to die. I need it. Be neat. New set of tapes, right? Or if, if we had a little button up here that says uh, erase. <laughs> and a certain thing happens and the old tape kicks in. It's going to kick in. No two ways about it. It kicks in. And you can say, gotcha. Erase it. Wouldn't that be wonderful? <laughs> Can't do it. Only way I know to change an old message is to put a new one on it. And put a new one over it. And put it over it and over it and over it and over it and over it again and again and again and again and again until the new message becomes the old message. Until that thought which used to precipitate a drink or a drug or a binge now precipitates a phone call to your sponsor or a trip to a meeting. A new reaction pattern. Programming, yeah. You want to call it that? It's called living, too. You've got to live your way into good thinking. That's what Grandpa told me. He's right. You've got to put that new message on top of that old one until it becomes the message. And even it will probably have to be altered or changed in the passage of time. And you've got to do it quickly. There's a thing about vultures. One of them lights on my arm. If I let him sit there for just a little while, before I know it, I look back, and there's a hundred of them suckers over there. 
Not only am I putting myself down a little bit, now, boy, my arm is loaded. Vultures attract vultures. That spiritual teacher I was talking about said it. Deal with your adversary quickly. When the vulture lights up there, when that old tape starts playing, put the new one on now. Do not wait. Get it in there. Kick it in right at the present moment. Now is the only time that we touch eternity. Don't let it sit. The friends will gather. And before you know it, you've done a number on yourself again. And if you let that happen long enough and enough of your old vultures come back, they will have both arms full, right? And they'll lift you bodily and carry you to a bar. So you watch for those put-downs, and you stop it. We're funny people. Not only do we want to be better than everybody else, we want to be worse than everybody else. You know that? Somebody tells an up story, we've got to tell one better. Somebody tells a down story, we've got to top that too. Strange, isn't it? Watching. It's important. Watch for the good. Watch for the bad. Watch yourself. And remember, when you're watching yourself, you're watching others too. Remember, there's not really any division. Remember that what I put on the wheel, what I do to you, comes back to me. The judgment I lay on you is the judgment that I lay on me, and vice versa. It is all intimately connected. It's always been that way, and it's always going to be. If I can't see anything good in you, you can bet I can't see anything good in me. Therefore, I have to feel superior. So watch yourself in this way. You make that mistake. And you say, I made that mistake. Just like that. I did it again. And what our tenth step says is when these arise, we ask God at once to remove them. Notice the at once. There it is. I did it. But without condemnation. And I hope you'll help me with that. And I trust that you will. And you go on about your business. We do not change overnight. We do not change overnight. But we learn to accept ourselves exactly like we are. Exactly. No front, no facade. That's ego stuff. In the seventh step, you ever read the prayer in the seventh step in the big book? It says, Lord, I'm now willing that you should have all of me, good and bad. Good and bad. That's an admission, isn't it? And there's some patterns that don't disappear overnight. Most of the old patterns don't disappear overnight. They keep reoccurring. The vulture lights, in other words, right? 
So what do you do? Damn yourself for it? Put yourself down for it? Yes, probably. Why not observe it as God would observe it? With love. Yeah. Love and concern. Even psychologists like Carl Rogers, quote, The curious paradox, said Rogers, is that the moment I accept myself just as I am, then I begin to change. End of quote. And we're fighting and condemning and kicking and screaming. I think when we ought to be accepting. And I'm saying a lot of this to me too because I have a terrible time with this. Watch yourself with love, with respect, with concern. Don't judge. Observe. And when you see it pop up, ask God's help at once. There's a mighty fine book that some of you would probably benefit from reading and probably enjoy. And it was written by a little monk. He was a cook in a monastery in Paris back in, what, the 17th century? 16th or 17th century. His name was Brother Lawrence. And he wrote a little book which is called The Practice of the Presence of God. He really didn't write it. It was written about him. must be a hundred books with that title, so the, the one by Brother Lawrence is the one that you want. And this little guy had lived his life so well that he was accounted a saint. Yeah. Everybody thought Lawrence was a saint except Lawrence. He couldn't understand what all the hubbub was about. And when he was dying, they, they, they sent the archbishop sent his, his uh, second-in-command down to interview him, you know. How did you become a holy man? Well, he's very surprised that they thought he was a holy man. He was a cook, and he said so. You know? And he said, well, how do you get along? Obviously, it just shows all over you. How do you get along with God so well to what you attribute a relationship to God? You know? He says, I think about God as often as I can, and I have a little conversation with Him. That'll blow you away, won't it? He said, set times of prayer, you know, and services and everything, they bore me. I'd, I'd just rather, you know, think about God and talk to Him. And he said something very important to me about self-acceptance. He said, when I'm in the kitchen and I drop a pot, he said, I will often say to God, see there, I dropped another pot. And if you don't help me, I'm always going to be dropping pots. And went on about his business. That's what I'm talking about. You see? That's what I'm talking about. You observe it. You don't judge it. You ask God's help with it. You go on about your business. Okay? Watch. Watch for the put-downs you do on yourself. Watch for the grace that surrounds you and works for you 24 hours a day. Watch yourself very closely and learn to observe, accept yourself as you believe God would accept you. And you will begin to change. That's one of the messages in the program. Any questions on that? Because we usually don't look at the, the tenth step as a practice of watching, do we? And yet, that's what it is. Okay? So we wake up and we try to stay awake, y'all. 
We try to stay awake. And remember, the words of the twelfth step in that first, first phrase are, having had a spiritual awakening as the result of these steps. That is the only result they're talking about. That's the result. But it's kind of an all-inclusive thing. Okay, so we watch. Another way to watch, and it's suggested in our literature, is, uh, you know, at night when you go to bed, think over your day. Again, observing. And in our book it says we're careful not to fall into morbid reflection. We simply, at the end of the day, as this old timer I love very much used to say, you count yourself up and you see how many you really are. Like that. And then you go to sleep. So at the end of the day, think about it. Some people write it. They keep a journal, you know. Not for the sake of, of keeping a black book on themselves, but for the sake of learning from their own behavior, self-observation, which patterns they need to work on and which patterns they are good at. Okay? Let's move on into the 11th step now, with this prayer and meditation business. Okay? Have I ever talked to you all about this, Patty? Some? Have you all heard me talk about prayer and meditation, all of you? Because you probably don't want to if you've heard it, but uh, uh, we'll go ahead a little bit. Prayer and meditation, being as they are spiritual practices, have also tended to fall into the province of religion, have tended to become formalized, to be looked upon as uh, otherworldly kinds of activities, you know, uh, not common and natural and normal in this kind of thing. They're far out. When you say to someone, I had migraine headaches for years. Oh, he says, how did you get rid of them? And you say, I began the practice of meditation. What would his reaction be? You know? Now, if you told him I took some Percodan, he'd understand that, you know, very clearly. Right? But meditation? Hmm. Don't know about that. But there's power there. God, there's power there. I have a friend in the program. He's, he's, I do not know how many years sober now. I mentioned him last night. Tom Powers. And Tom was vice president of the American Atheist Society. He was, literally, in his drinking days. And back in the 30s, uh, Tom was making quarter, half million dollars a year when it was big money. Big money. Advertising man. Slick, right? So every time he'd lose a job, he'd fall upstairs, get a better one. And Tom refers to himself as an asylum commuter. Because every time he'd go on a bender, he'd end up in a straitjacket. Every time. Psychotic. And he said, they'd take me to this hospital and they'd treat me. And he said, they didn't put me in with the drunks, they put me in with the jumping jacks. That's what he called <laughs> And they treated me, right? They gave me lots of hydrotherapy, you know, things that were current in those days, and kept me in a straitjacket until I behaved a little bit. And he said, then they gave me shock treatments. Now, Tom is a genius, a bona fide genius, no doubt about it. Vice President of the American Atheist Society, big man, makes lots of money. Okay? Shock treatment in those days was not electric. They hadn't learned how to do that yet. It was a drug called metrazole. And they gave you metrazole 
in near-lethal doses until you went unconscious, and then they held you while you convulsed. That was the shock treatment routine. In eight out of twelve of these, at twelve, series of twelve of these things, eight out of twelve, he was fully conscious. He did not go out. He convulsed while five guys held him down. He kept hearing this voice, did the Vice President of the American Atheist Society. And the voice was crying, God, oh God, please help me. And he realized who it was, Patty. It was him. Wonderful book he wrote, too. First title, First Questions on the Life of the Spirit. You can't find it in a bookstore. You'll have to contact. It's now called Invitation to a Great Experiment. Is Knowing God a Reality? Beautiful book. Quite a book. Any of you want to know about it, I'll give you his address or the bookstore where you can get it. It's out of print. <clears throat> Real genius, this guy. Today, this former vice president of the atheist, American Atheist Society, sober 40-some years, you know, uh, runs a place up in the mountains of New York called Eastridge. And it's a place for what he calls hopeless idiots. People like him who are so smart or so fried in the brain they can't make it in AA and NA. Or those who know all the answers and can't stay clean. And they go to Eastridge and they live. And they learn. And they stay straight. And this former Vice President of the American Atheist Society now says... Prayer is an instinct. Now think about that for a minute. That it's built into us just as deeply as the cells in our body. That we need to pray. That pray, prayer is a natural process. And again, if you have a hard time accepting this, think about that life-threatening situation that you had. There's an automatic cry, and it's always for God. The soul knows where to turn in times of trouble. I don't know why. I just know that it does. We need to pray, apparently. It is not otherworldly. It is natural. More than that, it is food. It is food for our spirit, just as the food we ate today at lunch for Quincy's, I think, was our bodies, wasn't it? Just for our bodies, maybe for our spirits, especially the uh, pineapple cake and banana pudding. We need it. It's automatic. It's instinctive. It's good. For me, it was for emergencies. Every time it was the bottom of the ninth and the count was three and two and there were two outs, I looked to the bench, and there sat the greatest pinch hitter on the face of the earth. I'd say, hey, I love you. really need you now. He'd come in, get up to the plate, switch hit. Which way you want me to hit? Hit left-handed this time. Home run. Every time. And I'd say, thank you. You know, I'm going to make you a part of my regular lineup from now on. You're really hitting the ball good. And I'd send him back to the bench where he sat until the next time it was bottom of the ninth, count three and two, and two outs. Didn't he all do that? 
Now, that's good prayer. The emergency kind of prayer, the automatic kind of prayer, proves that prayer is a natural thing, that prayer is, as the poet said, the soul's sincere desire. It is what the soul wants to do. But it is not the kind of prayer and meditation that we're talking about in this process of regeneration, rebirth and regeneration, growing down. What we're talking about here is discipline, prayer. Any golfers in here? Who's the best golfer in the world right now, your opinion? Golfer in the world. The guy that raised his hand. Who is it? Anybody? Spit out golfers here. Nicholas? Palmer? Who else? Watson? Uh, Longer is not bad, you know, and Craig Norman and, and these other... You know where... You know where let's take uh, Arnold Palmer, okay? Uh, in his heyday. You know where he spent a lot of time? On practice, on a practice tee. I've watched great pianists and violinists and things. They spend a lot of time practicing. Now you take Palmer, and, and he's out there on the tee. You know, early in the morning he's out on the tee. And he's got buckets full of balls. Maybe he's the finest golfer in the world. And he'll take one club, Patty, seven iron, right, for a while, and he'll hit buckets of balls. And then he'll move up maybe to the, you know, to the five iron and he hit buckets of balls. Then he'll pick up his driver, hit hours and hours and hours of practice, goes out on the golf course, big tournament, gets out on the fairway, pulls out a four-wood, and duck hooks it. Huh? Or he's within, you know, 95 yards of the hole and he, he gets out a pitching wedge, and, wedge and, and scalps it. You ever seen Palmer pick up his bag and throw him away and say, to hell with this, I ain't ever playing golf again? Why? Because golf's important to him. Excellence is important to him. When he hits a bad shot, watch him. Any good golfer will stand right in his tracks and redo that swing. You ever notice that? And that afternoon, guess where you'll find him? He'll have that club, that four-wood, and he'll be on that practice team. And he'll work through the clubs again. You see, my point is, you want to be good at something? You want to be a good prayer? Get on the practice tee. Get on the practice tee early in the morning. Hit some buckets of balls. Because if you're like me, the way I've been with prayer is the first time I duck hook one or banana slice one, I said, to heck with this, I'm not praying anymore. Then the next emergency came, and I prayed a little more, right? And then I'd start out in a spurt, and I'd pray and meditate for a while, and then I'd back off again and spurt again and spurt, you know. Discipline. You just do it. And you just keep on doing it. And sometimes you don't know why. My sponsor, well, another first thing he told me was, Ask God for help every morning and thank Him every night. I didn't know why I was to do that, except that He had told me to do it, so I did it. And after about three and a half months, I realized I hadn't wanted a drink in three and a half months. And then I realized why I was doing it. Many times it happens that way. And I prayed very selfishly, and I still do at times. And that's okay. Any of y'all make out shopping lists for God? 
Seriously. Do, do you? Make out a shopping list for God. Good prayers call that outlining, you know. You, you, you sit down there and you figure out what it is you need and when you need it, and you're very precise. You know, Lord, I need this by Thursday at 3.15 and this by two. that kind of thing. Who are you praying to? A clerk in the universal supermarket? Sometimes it's actually as if I believe God, you know, is a superhuman vending machine, y'all, full of M&Ms. I don't even get upset with me about that. I just do that. I make shopping lists for God, you know. I hope he's got a sense of humor, and I think he has. Because he hid himself in the last place he knew I'd ever look. I think he's got a good sense of humor. I mean that. Okay? So, making out those shopping lists really doesn't, uh, you know, work out too good anyway. Sometimes I've prayed for things and I've got them. Have you all ever done that? And then I don't know what the hell to do with them. you ever done that? <laughs> you all know the classic story about that, about praying for something. Be careful what you pray for because you might get it. The story of the man with the golden screw. you all ever heard that one? You haven't? Good. The guy had a golden, was born with a golden screw in his navel. And when he was a kid, he couldn't sunbathe, you know. He couldn't take his shirt off. He had to hide that golden screw, you know. And, uh, and he was tired of it. Carried it all his life. Prayed all his life. Please take this golden screw away from me. Nothing happened. You know, he got ready to get married. And, uh, he said, what's my wife going to think? When I take my clothes off, she sees this golden screw. Nobody else in the world got a golden screw in their navel but me. I don't like it. So he started praying. He's praying and praying about this golden screw, and this big voice says to him, Shut up. I'm tired of hearing about that golden screw. So I want you to go ahead and lay down on the bed, close your eyes, count to ten very quietly. Open your eyes, and this cloud's going to come floating across your bed. And on that cloud's going to be a golden screwdriver, and I want you to take that golden screw and take that golden screwdriver and take a screw out of your belly button. I want you to put them both up on that cloud, and it's going to go away, and I don't ever want to hear anything else about that golden screw. The man was just overjoyed, man. Ran into the bedroom, couldn't wait. Got real quiet, closed his eyes, counted to ten, opened them up. Here's a cloud. Golden screwdriver. He reaches up and gets it, takes out that golden screw, breathes a great sigh of relief, lays the screwdriver and the screw on the cloud. It goes away. He stood up and his ass fell off. <laughs> so we let God discipline us, it says. In a simple way, we've just outlined. Watching and praying. Be regular. Pick a time each day for an appointment with the higher power. Be serious about it. Be sincere about it. Have fun at it. Look forward to your visit. Feel free. Feel friendly. Feel loved. And pray. Because you need to. It's built into you just as deep as your cells. I believe that. You need to do it. Then we jump over to the flip side. You know, it's meditation business. Well, you talk about getting bent out of shape. Now, when I got into meditation, I was a sight. I look back on me, I don't know how I stayed, you know, sober, sane, much less sober when I was doing that. Definition of meditation, as I understand it today, is not thinking. I didn't understand it that way when I first... I didn't understand it at all. 
I really thought, and I tell this, people think I'm lying, I really thought that the great meditators, right, were guys who shaved their heads. You had to be a good one. You had to do this. Shave your head, get a saffron robe and wear it, right? Sit down on the floor with your legs crossed all funny, you know, and chant on. Now, that's what I figured you had to do if you was going to meditate. And some people do it that way, and I honor that, but I didn't know what in the world I was doing. I can get into the lotus position. I cannot get out of it. Any, any of y'all have a problem? You know, I drove a lot drunk, and my legs have been busted all to pieces. I can't get out of it. I get all locked in. It hurts me, too. It's uncomfortable. But I figure that's the way to do it. Couldn't find a saffron robe. Too damn vain to shave my head, right? But it would do to get all locked up in the lotus position and chant Om. And you know what happened? Nothing. <laughs> Nothing. It's embarrassing. I figure, hell, I'll be laying on a bed of nails and a six by running over me in ten days here. You know, if I'm gonna meditate. I'm going for the top right away. Lock me up in a, you know, an airtight compartment for a couple of days. I'll show you how to slow down my breath. Hell, I'd have died. What I'd have done. I mean, we alcoholics are impatient. I am anyway. I'm going for the top. I'm gonna meditate with the best of them. Move over, Guru Nanak. Here comes Tom. See, I was still insane. I hadn't had a drink for quite a while. I was still nuts. I just didn't know it. So I sat and I chanted. And nothing happened. And I got pissed. <laughs> I did. <laughs> he just wasn't coming, you know. And uh, I called a friend of mine down in Texas. He's meditating and he's showing up in his life. The guy was doing good. He's a dentist, you know. Good guy. Brilliant. I said, I'm trying to get into meditation, Harris. I said, uh, you got any books I can read? He said, yeah. He said, now I'm going to tell you what books to get. And he said, I'm going to star them. One star is very simple and five stars is very complex. So I made my list. Went to the bookstore. Guess which one I read first. <laughs> Have any of you ever read The Cloud of Unknowing? Anybody? Don't. <laughs> It was written in Middle English, right? Thee, thou's, all those things. And, and it was written by a man who had spent his whole life in a monastery on top of a mountain meditating. And I'm going to do his number in two weeks. <laughs> Whew. I called Harris a couple of weeks. I said, this ain't working. He said, well, what book did you read? And I said, The Cloud of Unknowing. He said, I thought so, dummy. Don't read anymore. He said, how long are you meditating? I said, an hour or two every morning. <laughs> he said, I've been doing it nine years. The longest I ever go is 15 minutes. I take Saturday and Sunday off. <laughs> See, I'm an alcoholic. I also don't know the word moderation, right? <laughs> moderation is not in my vocabulary. You know, it's full tilt all the time. All or nothing, right? Discipline and moderation. Those two words are not there. And that's what the 10th and 11th and 12th steps are all about. Discipline and moderation. I know what it was. I thought Om was a magic word. You know, you're supposed to see all kinds of visions. They talked about a third eye. I kept looking for that sucker and couldn't find it. <laughs> one of them sits on the bridge of my nose. Another one sits up on my forehead. I couldn't figure out where it was. Then I got talking to this other guy in AA. He said, the secret to it all is your sphincter muscles. Yeah. You know, if you're going to meditate right, you've got to learn to move those sphincter muscles right. This guy was far out. I mean, really. <laughs> 
Yeah, I sit down and try my damn sphincter muscles too. <laughs> Took me a long time to get into the big book about it, you know. Things like prayer and meditation. Hell, you don't go to big book. I talk to people about prayer and meditation. Say, where can I find a good book? Big book. And their countenance falls like shit. <laughs> it's a good book. Then when we awake, upon awakening, we think about the day ahead. We relax and take it easy. We ask for an intuitive thought or a decision. It's good stuff. It's good, lean stuff. I recommend it to beginners. I recommend it to guys who have a tendency like me to fly out on one limb on meditation and fly out on another limb. And it's like coming home to get back to page 86. Upon awakening. You ever daydream? Hmm? You ever just sit and stare off into space somebody comes up and says hey where are you you say huh I didn't know were you thinking <clears throat> were you hmm you were meditating it is natural it is necessary it is not otherworldly and far out I mentioned last night the guy down in Texas that taught me so much used to call me Sugar. Named Bob White. I went on a 12-step call with Bob White one day down in Whitney, Texas. We didn't do that drunk a bit of good. His ears were closed, you know. But we both stayed sober. On the way down the street, and Bob was always, you know, just talking and grinning. The happiest man I ever saw. And uh, he pulls his truck beside the road. And he turns to me and gives me that grin. He said, Sugar, he says, you see that little cloud up there next to that big one? I said, yeah. He said, you think I can make that cloud go away? Now I looked up to this man, and I told him so. I said, Bob, I have a lot of respect for you, but you can't make a cloud go away. And he said, you watch it. And he grinned. He sat there and looked at that cloud. Two or three minutes, that cloud was gone. I mean it. Scared the hell out of me. <laughs> it scared the hell out of me. I really. I got, to, you know, edging toward the door. I was getting ready to get out. And he turns at me and grins. You know? Sweetest man, too. I've got to miss him. And he said, Sugar, you think you can do that? I said, No, nah, Bob, I ain't been sober long enough to make no cloud. <laughs> Some idiotic statement like that, you know, and he grinned at it. He says, yeah, you can. They pick you a small cloud close to a big one. Focus all your attention on it and will it away. I did. By God, that cloud went away. I taught my children how to do it. We was laying in the front yard vaporizing clouds. <laughs> it's the truth. Every kid in the neighborhood come over and said, What y'all doing? Said, We vaporizing clouds. Said, What's that? Whole damn yard's full of kids and me. 
Yeah. Bob taught me that. And that's a wonderful thing. I dare you to think and vaporize a cloud at the same time. Meditation's purpose is to disarm the ego, put the intellect in neutral. It's idling, but it's not thinking. And all forms of meditation do this, it seems, by focusing not on the ego or the intellect, but on something else. Focusing all of your attention on one thing, on the sound. Focusing all your attention on one thing, your breath going in and out your nostrils. That's what the Buddha was doing when he was enlightened. Focusing on one thing like breathing in, Lord Jesus Christ, and breathing out, have mercy on me, as the Christian meditators did. And when your mind wanders away, as it will, that's just a signal to bring it back and watch your breathing or chant or say your mantra. You see, Bob White taught me this too. Said, Sugar, used to when I'd sit down to pray, he said, the first thing that would come in my mind was a chorus line of naked women. Didn't he all have that problem? I mean, you sit down to do something holy, you know, and something, you know, pretty but not exactly holy comes into your mind and thoughts follow. Any of y'all get lustful as hell? <laughs> he said, you know, I just try to run them out. I said, get off there. Get off there. Get out of here. I'm praying. I'm talking to God. you got no business dancing naked across the stage of my mind. And he said, the more I fought them, the more of them there was. Until there's so many women on the stage of my mind, I just gave up this idea of praying went all about my business. made me angry. He said, you want to know what to do now? I always wanted to know what he had to say. He said, I let them dance on across the stage in my mind, and when they're gone, I pray. <laughs> Spiritual teacher said it. Don't fight the evil thing. Resist not. Turn the other cheek. In AA, we say, let go and let God. Live and let live. Same thing. You take your attention off those ladies, you know. They do their number and they're gone. But if you fight, they beat you. Lisa and I used to walk along the beach. Pick up pieces of ocean glass. Do you all ever do that? I mean, glass has been worked on by the ocean. God is so, it's cloudy looking, you know. And, and, and green glass is pretty common and red glass is pretty common. Every now and again you find a piece of white ocean glass, right? And uh, she found a black one one time. And these are treasures. And we walk down the beach, you know, looking for ocean glass. Can't think when you're looking for ocean glass. You're watching the sand too hard, you know. And we find a piece, pick it up, rub on it, say, thank you, God, put it in our pocket and keep on going. First thing you know, we'd walked a pretty good distance and hadn't thought. The Buddhist had a name for the ego. You know what they called it? The drunken monkey. The drunken monkey, the intellect. 
always falling around up here, never still, always chattering, ceaselessly chattering. You give your attention to the monkey, the monkey will keep it. You take your attention from the monkey and focus on something else, you disarm the monkey. He shuts up, or you don't hear him. So we do this. Because the step says we sought through prayer and meditation. <clears throat> now, what do you do when you're sitting there watching your breath go in and out your nose, funny boy? Sometimes you feel so good you can't hardly stand it. His meditation releases endorphins. Sometimes there's nothing that's flat. But later on in the day, you find yourself in a situation that you used to couldn't handle, and all of a sudden you handle it. <clears throat> you say to God, you know, I don't know how to handle this particular situation, but you do, and I'm going to listen while you tell me, if you will. And he tells you. What our book says is beautiful. What the AA book says about it. What used to be the occasional hunch or the inspiration gradually becomes a working part of the mind. We learn to depend on inspiration. What else happens? I sit down with people sometimes and some of them are troubled people. And I hear me saying something to them which is so profound... Lord, it just, you know. And right away the ego jumps in and says, Remember that, Tom. That's heavy. <laughs> and I can't. You ever had that experience? It's said. It's done. It's like the channel's open. It's been done now. That's it. You can't hold it. It's not yours. Can't remember it. If you don't get anything else out of meditation except this, you sit down for ten minutes in the morning, you pray and meditate, you focus on one thing, you know, get quiet, go down within yourself. It carries over into the day, y'all. More and more you find yourself able to focus on one thing at a time. How many of you have problems with that? What upsets me often is I'm trying to do everything at once. If I can discipline myself for ten minutes in the morning, it carries over into the day. Yes, it does. And I'm able to work on one thing at a time, and I don't get so emotionally out of balance. Bill wrote that in the 12 and 12. If that's all I get out of it, that's enough. Bill says one of the first fruits of prayer and meditation is emotional balance. I believe that. But that's not all. You just know things. Never got any words, you know. But I've gotten images and symbols and pictures and people's faces, and that's something when you get a person's face. And I always call them when I'm done meditating, and they always were either thinking about me, getting ready to call me, or needed to hear from me. How do you know these things? I don't know. I'm not smart enough to know that, but God is. And so gradually, by the numbers, y'all, through surrender and acceptance and 
inventory and confession and these other things. We chop away at that big eye until it becomes a little eye, an anonymous eye, an equal eye, an eye that's able to relate on a, you know, on a level with someone, an eye that loves itself because it no longer has to compare itself to other eyes. An eye that is related to the higher power in a very healthy and wholesome way. The whole thing's a circle. The whole thing's a return. You grow out, you know, and then you grow back down. And the coming home part's fun. Some of us, it takes effort. Now, maybe I should say all of us. It takes a lot of effort. Okay? These steps have a lot to do with it have everything to do with it in my way of thinking. Um, I think I'm out. Is there any questions or anything? Okay. hope this has made some sense to you. I hope you understand what I mean by growing down. I uh, have always believed, I knew when I heard my son say that, that it was true. I just didn't know why. And I've been trying to learn why, I guess, ever since. I agree with Eckhart that... Uh, the soul does not grow by addition, but by subtraction. And I hope you understand what he's talking about. And he's got there's a nice little book called The Meditations of Meister Eckhart. He's quite a quite a fellow. Says some simple good stuff. I'm going through it for the second or third time now. Still don't understand it all, but it feels good. You know what I mean? Uh, get into these maintenance steps after you finish those first nine steps. Keep yourself growing, but remember which direction you're growing in. Okay. Remember, the direction is back towards the Father, back toward home. If you want to fulfill your deepest desire, that is the direction I believe that you must go. And that's what this program is all about. Any questions? I wanted to say, too, if there are any of you that want those tapes and you do just don't have the money, maybe you're newly sober or something like that, just see Lisa or me or Jerry. It's no big deal. Okay? Anything like that. Any any other questions or questions at all? Okay. I've either put you to sleep or we've had a good day. And I feel pretty good. Eat my stomach.